Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thanks for your company again. Look, even in the streets, I run into so many people who've found us. So tell your friends, it's easy to watch. So just go to the website, adh.tv. Nadia, whom I met today in the streets, good evening, Nadia, wrote it into her mobile phone. The Watch Now button is at the top and it's all there live and on demand. And as you know, it's free. Tonight on the program, we'll be looking at an overview of the election on Saturday, including where things are now and the seats to watch. In the betting market, Labor odds on at $1.52 to win. The Coalition, $2.65. You have to remember a few things. The first and most important point is that the Liberal Party base is disillusioned. The second is that many of these candidates for must-win seats were pre-selected at the 11th hour and in some cases barely have enough money to pay for T-shirts. They're given the gig, they're not supported in the campaigning stage. The third is that this is a government seeking re-election for a fourth term. They look tired. The talent pool is not that great and frankly, what is the policy offering? If it's more of the same, many Australians are saying, no thanks. Oppositions don't win government. Governments lose. Times are very different from what they were in 2013 when the coalition entered government. The world has become more dangerous. The culture wars have intensified. The economy is not crash hot either. Government expenditure is still out of control. We've just gone through a period where freedoms were crushed. And anyone with a differing view to that held by health bureaucrats was silenced, cancelled. Australians were treated as second-class citizens in their own country, unable to cross borders or allowed back in from overseas. Our coalition government was nowhere to be seen in any of these instances. So if you're asking me, which many people are, can Scott Morrison win on Saturday? The unpalatable answer is he cannot win 76 seats and you need that to form a government. More of that coming up with the former Victorian Liberal Party President Michael Kroger. And I'll be joined in the studio by Catherine Deves. And you can email me. Your views are important. Alan Jones at adh.tv. Well, as Election Day approaches, people shake their heads and say, and then there are the Greens. They managed 10.4% of the vote at the last federal election in the lower house. And in the latest news poll last Friday, the Greens were at 11%. The coalition vote has collapsed from 41.4% at the last election to 35%. The Greens are boasting that with the Teal independence, they'll be able to bring down the Morrison government, put climate change on the agenda and win the balance of power in the Senate. This threat must be taken seriously. The Greens believe, as they usually do, that they're going to win a seat other than that of the leader Adam Bant in Melbourne in the lower house. 
They are specifically targeting Labor's Terry Butler in the Queensland seat of Griffith, Trevor Ryan in Brisbane, and the Liberal backbencher, should that be back branch stacker, Julian Simmons in Ryan. I'll come to that later in the program. But it has to be immensely disturbing for Australia that this irresponsible outfit could have any political sway. Adam Bant spoke to the National Press Club last month. What he had to say was nothing short of a national nightmare. He attacked fossil fuels and included gas in that attack. Obviously, he's completely ignorant of what's happening in Europe. While we go on about net zero carbon dioxide emissions, the Russians and Chinese increase their fossil fuel use and they'll be clapping hands at their ability to manufacture and supply countries like Australia with everything that's needed for wind turbines and solar panels. How smart's that? If the Greens want to end our gas industry, as they do, our coal industry, Russia and the dictatorships in the Arab Gulf would be the beneficiaries. They are the big gas producers, apart from us. Have you ever heard such nonsense by the Greens? Wipe out our gas industry and in this way, strengthen the gas industry in Russia. If the only nations which produce gas after the Greens ban our gas production in Australia are anti-Western dictatorships, this is a disaster for the West. Bant and his Greens don't seem to understand that a world dominated by Putin and China's Xi don't care too much about greenhouse gas emissions. Resource and energy export earnings are forecast to reach for us $379 billion this financial year, as demand for our coal and gas surges in the face of a global energy shortage. This is the bedrock of our economy. And come Saturday, the Greens are bidding to have the balance of power in both houses, but they want to cut off gas and all other fossil fuel exports. How the hell does Australia pay for its social democracy, which boasts generous welfare payments, first-class hospital care, a national disability insurance scheme, the list is endless. But Band and his vandals want to dismantle $379 billion of export income. Now, cop this. The Greens argue that China doesn't pose a threat to Australia and they've got no problem with the Solomon Islands' decision to form a security partnership with Beijing. The Greens want our military spending, which until recently has been totally inadequate, to be slashed and the AUKUS agreement cancelled. They want Australia's nuclear submarine program to be axed, Pine Gap to be closed and the US Marines out of Darwin. Why has the mainstream media not addressed these issues from an irresponsible political party boasting that it seeks the balance of power? China has the largest navy in the world, 355 ships and submarines. Its naval battle force has more than tripled in size in two decades. In four years, China has built new naval vessels, new vessels equivalent in tonnage to the entire Royal Australian Navy fleet. And they've done that every 18 months. Its Coast Guard has doubled from 60 to 130 1,000 ton ships in a decade. And a maritime militia has 300 vessels operating in the Spratly Islands, which are approximately 3,000 kilometres from Darwin. As Peter Dutton, the Defence Minister, told me on this program, quote, over the next decade, China's nuclear warhead stockpile, estimated to be in the 200s last year, is projected to reach between 700 and 1,000 warheads. And he said this, every major city in Australia, including Hobart, is in range of China's missiles. Yet, 
what does this 27-year-old Greens Peace and Disarmament spokesperson, Jordan Steele John, have to say? He's 27 and he's been in the Senate for five years. He says, I don't see China as a military threat to Australia and that Australia should butt out of the affairs of the Pacific states, he says, and that outfits like the Solomon Islands should be free to, quote, defend their territorial boundaries and build relationships, unquote. Even though Australian and US officials fear the Solomon Islands-China Security Pact will allow Chinese naval patrols to operate from the Solomon Islands and open the way for the establishment of a permanent Chinese base 2,000 kilometres, do you mind, off Australia's northeast coast. Are we seriously saying that 11% of voting Australians are prepared to give these people, the Greens, a vote on Saturday in the light of their unapologetic articulation of these policies? Responsible and clear-thinking Australians would argue that everything known about the Greens should disqualify them from a single vote. Voters on Saturday are deciding our future. I urge a bit of caution. Put people in the Senate who will knock off this rubbish. Well, look, I promised you we'd look at the state of play in this election with only a couple of days to go. One person who knows this scene backwards is the former president of the Victorian Liberal Party and a very prominent Liberal figure, Michael Kroger. And he joins me. Michael, thank you for your time. What have you made of this campaign? Great pleasure. Well, I think the one dominant factor in this campaign is that people have seen, <coughs> seen that Albanese is an underperformer. I mean, as we know, Alan, governments lose elections, opposition don't win them, opposition leaders basically just have to stand up to get elected like, like Rudd did in 2007, for example. But what's happened in this campaign is Morrison's, I think, been quite superb, and Albo uh, has made too many blunders, and I think people think he's probably not up to the job. I think that's the biggest thing to come out of the campaign so far, and that's why you're not seeing a big increase in Labor's vote. You're seeing that drift to the independents, and that's Labor's biggest trouble. Is Morrison on the nose, though, with traditional Liberals? Well, look, a fellow came up to me at a polling booth in Higgins, uh, outside a supermarket in Higgins a few weeks ago, and he said, oh, I'm not voting for you, I can't stand your leader. And, Alan, because I've stood at that supermarket for the last five or six elections <laughs> on Saturday mornings, I was able to say to the bloke, yeah, mate, that's what you told me about John Howard. So we have these people that years ago always said, oh, we'd vote Liberal, but we're not, well, we don't like John Howard. And as John Howard himself says, you couldn't give me away in Melbourne <laughs> for many years. So um, I think Labor have run a very clever campaign undermining Scott Morrison. It's been a subliminal campaign, don't hold a hose, all of those things. They've undermined him for 18 months. Uh, is Scott on the nose with traditional Liberal voters? With some, with some. But every, every leader is after, you know after all these years in government, after nine you, years in government. So you've got, you've got children. You've got children. Is this is debt an issue? Now, the Coalition inherited gross national debt of 20% of GDP. By the time COVID struck, it had run up to 28%. There'd been no crisis. But that was the biggest load of national debt since 1958. Now, kids who today are five or six will be left to pay this off. The gross national debt now is 42.5% of GDP. Now, Whitlam was regarded as an economic dunce and he recorded 24.5%. And the budget papers tell us that debt will climb to 44.9% of GDP in two years' time. Now, is debt an issue? People are writing to me and saying they're worried stiff about it.
Well, Alan, it hasn't been because uh, of the low interest rates. It yeah. hasn't been because yeah. people um, have been, you know, joyous at receiving payments during mm. the pandemic. It hasn't been because uh, people basically take the view, well, they didn't run it up personally. It's mm. someone else's responsibility. It's not but their tre responsibility. Treasury, is now, saying, Treasury is now saying the interest bill could be $12 billion a year higher than the $26 billion. So that's $38 billion. As your man, old man and mine would say, it's a bloody lot of interest. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a huge amount of money and you're facing an interest rate, an environment where interest rates are going to increase, as everybody knows. So... You know, um, is it a problem? Yes, of course it's a problem. Um, and uh, this, But this is a worldwide problem. Western governments have never been more indebted everywhere in the world. Mm. I mean, the American, I don't know what the American debt is, it's, 30, well, it's got exceeded 30 trillion. Yeah. Um, These the staggering sums we've never seen before. And where you have higher interest rates, as we're going to see, um, this mm. is going to put tremendous pressure Definitely. on all these governments because... Definitely. The debts are out of control. Mm. Before we go to the seats, there are a lot of variables. I just want to touch these with you quickly in the election campaign. 17.2 million eligible to vote, but 5.2 million have voted so far. Now, many of them, I suspect, illegally because you can only vote early, either in person or by post, if you meet certain criteria. You're never asked about those criteria when you pre-poll, are you? Well, Alan, this is one of the great um, uh, mysteries of this of this uh, massive pre-poll vote. Um, I would suspect the majority of these votes have been cast illegally. Yeah. Uh, yes. And at various yes. polling booths, you, I get that you're either asked yeah. very specifically for the reason, and at some polling booths you're not asked at all. So in terms of AEC governance, there's been a total failure of governance in relation to uh, determining whether people actually have a right to vote or not. So I've been at polling booths at pre-polls for the last week or so, uh, and, um, you know, I've wanted to vote, but I'm actually not entitled to vote because I'm not going to be out of the area on the Saturday. I don't have another job. I'm not COVID-fearing. I don't fear crowds, etc. So I haven't voted, even though there were crowds and crowds of people at the Higgins pre-polling booth in Glenfrey Road, Malvern, last night. But the vast majority of those people have voted illegally because... They've just, they've been just voting out of convenience and no-one's stopping them. And uh, people now tend to think that the election campaign goes for... The voting period goes for two weeks. No, in fact, it doesn't. It goes for one day. Yeah. But as you say, if those criteria are satisfied, you're entitled to vote. Well, the criteria are not being enforced by the AEC. Well, well, um, where, where is and, the Electoral uh, Commission? They don't seem to care. The AEC doesn't seem to care whether people have, have a right to vote or not. Well, Michael, let's have a look at the state of play very quickly in the 46th Parliament. That's the Parliament that has just been prorogued. And on this document that goes up on the screen, you'll see exactly where we are. So those figures are there in the House of Representatives we're talking about. Now, Queensland up there, there are the figures, 23 LNP, Labor only six, Catter one. They've got 30 seats. Uh, New South Wales, Liberal 14, National 7, ALP 24, UAP, that's Hughes, Craig Kelly, and the Independent Stegall. So New South Wales, 47. Victoria, you can see there, now I've got 38. They've got Haynes as an Independent, Bant as the Greens, and the Liberals, 12, Nationals, 3. Then in Tasmania, it's 2 and 2, and Wilkie, the Independent. And in South Australia, the Liberals, 4, ALP, 5, Sharkey as Centre Alliance. Total number of seats there, 10. And WA, the Liberals 11 and the ALP 5, 16. The ACT, ALP 3, uh, Northern Territory, ALP 3. Total 76. Now, at the end of the day, the, sorry, the Coalition have got 76 and the ALP have 68. Now, Michael, 
to, to get into government, you've got to win 76 seats. On all the figures, I can't see Scott Morrison getting 76. Can you? Uh, if you look at the polls, the answer is no, you can't. But if you looked at the polls in 19, you couldn't either. And the big thing we don't know, we, we, we don't know and no one's explained is this. Have any of these polling companies factored into their polling, Alan, the shy Trump voter effect? So as you, as you know, as well as anyone, where cultural issues are at play in an election, there is a shy conservative voter effect of conservatives who are not prepared to tell the pollster who they're voting for. And we saw it historically, of course, in 16 with Trump, with Brexit, with Johnson and with Morrison in 19. Where there are not cultural issues at play, such as the Western Australian state election, the Queensland state election, uh, the South Australian state election, uh, there is not really a shy Trump voter effect. Now, I suspect in this election, there is quite a significant shy Morrison voter effect, as there was in 19. For example, if people agree with Catherine Deeves on that issue, are they saying to a pollster, oh, yes, I'm voting Conservative, etc., etc., impliedly because I support what Catherine Deeves says? No, they're not. They're not at all. So uh, you're, going, you're going to, if you look at the current polls, Labor wins. But what is that undeclared voter effect? And no polling company has told us whether they're factoring into their vote the errors that they made in 19 by not fully uh, uh, factoring in the fact that people are not prepared to tell apostles the truth. Okay, so the answer just, is yes, I can see getting you, to you mentioned Catherine Deeds. We'll, you mentioned Catherine Deeds. We'll be talking to her later in the program. Let's go through, Michael, very quickly, therefore, the seats to watch. And if you check this document up on the screen, state by state. Now, I'm omitting the Senate here, but we talk about the Senate. I mean, that'll be later. So in the seats to watch for example, there is Queensland. Now, Longman, on the figures I have, seems gone. Ryan and Brisbane are two interesting seats where the Greens and the Labor Party are neck and neck. Now, perish the thought, but if the Greens actually get ahead of Labor on primaries, the Greens could win Ryan and Brisbane. But those three seats are held by uh, the Coalition. Have you got a thought there? Look, they could. And what we've seen in, you know, you, you take the seat of Brisbane where the, the Greens have won two state seats in the last five years. Yep. Uh, the increased urbanisation of the rich, privileged, Correct. you know, up class, well-to-do, et cetera, et cetera, the West Wing and Kuyong at the minute, et cetera. Uh, the Greens could well get ahead of, ahead of Labor and, and ultimately mm. take those two seats. Perish I don't think thought. they'll get them this time. We've okay, got go, a 5.9 margin. Yeah. Go, so to New in, in, go to New South Wales. Um, the Coalition are in real trouble in Reid and in Robertson, surprisingly in Benelong. And on the figures that I've just got, we're two days out, of course, it does appear as though Andrew Constance can't win Gilmore. Hughes is interesting where Craig Kelly has defected to the UAP and the Liberals are narrowly in front there of a, an independent candidate. It's very tight. And Wentworth, on the figures I've seen, Dave Sharma will most probably fall over the line. What do you make there? Well, uh, I, I, you know, Sharma's got a very narrow margin, so that's going to be extremely close. Ben Long, of course, with the retirement of the great Jolly Alexander, every time a member retires, and we're seeing that in Swan and Pearson, Western Australia, you suffer a 2 or 3% hit. That's why that's a bit closer. Uh, I think Reid is in, in great difficulty, mainly because the member crossed the floor on an issue that um, made uh, the overwhelming majority of electorate um, disappointed. So that's going to be a very difficult seat. Um, Craig Kelly won't be re-elected, obviously, in Hughes, and that'll be, I think, will be held by the coalition. But right. so I don't see a lot of change yeah. in New South Wales. 
if there was one to go, the closest one would, would, be, uh, would be Wentworth. Right. And let's go, if we could just keep that table up, please, on the screen, Victoria. Then you've got Chisholm in, and Goldstein. They both seem to be in all sorts of trouble for the government. Kuyong, I get the impression on the numbers I've got that Josh Frydenberg will get over the line. The trouble is it then becomes hopelessly marginal. And the National Party, Michael, are worried about the seat of Nichols, um, which amazingly had a massive two-party preferred to the Nationals under drum at the last election. But they're now running an independent mm. candidate and there's a thought that the Labor will run dead down there, the same candidate a geophysicist has ran at the last election. So what do you make? You know Victoria backwards. Yeah, well, um, that seat of Nichols is, is a potential loss to to uh, the independent up around Shepparton. Uh, it's been, you know, National Party, Liberal Party seat for you know, one of us and then the other for many, many years. But uh, I would I would expect that to be held by by um, by the coalition forces, probably the National Party. Goldstein and Chisholm, um, both hard. Um, uh, Higgins and and uh, Kuyong, well, you got to say this, Alan, that in Higgins, Kuyong and, Ch and Goldstein, that the sitting members need 45% of the primary yes. vote. Josh got 49, Katie yes. Allen just under yes. 49, Tim Wilson 52. If they get below 45% primary vote, then there's a great deal of difficulty in holding those seats yes, because they only get just got 21.4% of the non-major party preferences. So you don't get many of the preferences. So they need a base of they need a base of 45% to hold those seats. I've got to say, quite frankly, if 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 there's no place for Josh Frydenberg in the Australian Parliament, we may as well close the joint down. Yeah, 100% correct. Let's go to Tasmania. Bass and Braddon, strangely, uh, a very good candidate, Liberal candidate in Braddon, seems to be in more trouble than Bridget Archer in Bass, but they are both being proving very difficult for the coalition. Yeah, well, um, uh, I, I note that Gavin Pearce's family have been in the area of Braddon since the 1850s, yep. so for goodness sake, it would be, you know, it'd be yep. un-Australian to throw him out, Alan, you'd have to say that. Uh, and Bridget Archer, because, um, you know, she took a very strong stand in relation to the Integrity Commission, um, it has has a national profile. I, I would expect the coalition to hold both of those. If they don't hold both of those, then they're not going to win government. Yes, that's, that's right. In there. South Australia, Boothby seems to be gone, I have to say. Now, in WA is interesting, uh, Swan and Pierce, all sorts of trouble there with retiring members, and strangely enough, has luck with a margin of, uh, in a very significant uh, local figure there, a margin of almost 6%. It's turned marginal. Well, can White will win, though? It's 5.9. You're more in trouble in seats like Benelong, as we said, where, where the sitting members are retiring, and that's the issue we've got with Steve Irons yeah. and Christian Porter. So, um, you know, Ken's held that seat since 2010. He'll hold that seat. But, you know, Western Australia and Queensland show you and have for years that, that, that the population will vote strongly one way in a state and entirely the other way federally. Mm. And we've performed the New South Wales, the Queensland and Western Australian divisions have performed incredibly well. They've been the backbone of the success of the government for many years and uh, I think has luckily held the other two difficult. Yeah, and the ACT in the Northern Territory is safe Labor. Just before you go, look, a Senate, uh, half Senates, half of them elected, 76 seats. Um, there's a real concern here. I mean, the Greens already have nine seats in the Senate. Surely when people go into the poll on Saturday, they've got to think very, very seriously about who they give their vote to in the Senate. Well, Alan, um, you know the Senate. The Senate has been a a, a, a negative for uh, Australian, you know, governments in in over the years. When when you know, it's better that either the coalition controls it 
All Labor controls it. Hmm. This complete roulette wheel of politics where governments have got no idea where any of their legislation is going to be passed or not is holding Australia back. And the thought that the Greens would increase their numbers yeah, and have a more significant stake is, is unthinkable given the damage these people would do to Australia. Good on you. All right, Michael, great to talk to you. I think in summing up, Thanks, Scott Ellen. Morrison's got a real problem getting to 76, but there are two days to go. Michael Kroger, always great to talk to you. Thank you for your scholarship and your insights. Catch up soon. There he Cheers, is, Alan. Michael Kroger. He's forgotten more than most people know about the Liberal Party. Now, look, I always say my viewers are my best researchers, and that's why your emails are very important. Email me at alanjones at adh.tv. I enjoy reading what you think. One of my regular viewers has made a very important point, and it's about the anger that people feel at this nonsense about teal independence, climate change, and what has almost become a green mafia. You see, Australia knows that La Nina floods have mangled the roads of Eastern Australia with potholes, gully wash, mud and silt. One of my viewers, Viv, has written, and I quote, have the green teams in the leafy suburbs worked out how real workers can repair roads, fences, culverts and bridges without diesel-powered bulldozers, graders, rollers and trucks and lots of high-emission plants producing cement, steel, gravel and hot bitumen? And he asks, what powers the washers cleaning acres of silt from flooded homes and shops, or the slashers mowing the grass and weeds that are sprouting everywhere. And where do we get net zero polypipe and fencing materials? As he writes, without hydrocarbons like coal, gas, diesel and petrol, we'd be back to brooms and brushes, picks and shovels, axes and buckets, stirrup pumps and horsepower. As Viv tellingly observes, quote, maybe Team Teal, can sample the real world by joining the Blistered Hands Brigade, unquote. That's called reality, as opposed to the meaningless rhetoric that's served up to us almost daily by most politicians. Well, look, I'm delighted that my next guest is the very courageous Catherine Deves, the Liberal candidate for the seat of Warringah, a smarter, more relevant and more community-oriented candidate than the existing Teal member. I was most probably the first person to interview Catherine Deves on this simple issue, that as a society, we can't ignore biological reality. Catherine is a lawyer, the co-founder and the spokeswoman for Save Women's Sport Australasia. It's non-partisan, non-religious, a grassroots organisation, part of an international coalition of women's organisations, athletes and supporters of women in sport, who assert simply that male athletes should not compete in the female sport category. This is not an attack on transgenderism or gender identity, but the organisation Save Women's Sport grew from policies in Australia and New Zealand, which were prioritising the inclusion of males in female sport with a declared trans and or gender identity. Catherine Deves, since the day I interviewed her when no one had heard of her back in April last year, Catherine is simply arguing in defence of women's sex-based rights when sporting organisations, almost all of them, began endorsing guidelines that prioritised self-declared gender identity over biological sex for competition categories. Let me make it clear. I've always recognised the difficulty of people who feel they might be a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body. That's not the issue. It's entirely separate from saying that someone born a man should qualify to play in women's sport. Catherine is the mother of three little girls who participate in seven sports 
and I believe the overwhelming majority of Australians support Catherine Deeves' views. They now have a chance to demonstrate that support by voting for her on Saturday in the seat of Warringah. This is a highly intelligent and courageous woman, and she joins me. Catherine, thank you for your time. Just in a preliminary sense, how have you handled these extraordinary attacks against you for making a fairly simple point? Good evening, Alan. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I do need to clarify, I am the Liberal candidate for Warringah and I've handed on Save Women's Sports Australasia to a group of very dedicated women who are carrying the torch there. Uh, but with respect to um, what's happened to me over the last few weeks, uh, look, I've had a lot of support out there in the community uh, through my volunteers and you know, the position that I've held with sport, I think is common sense. I don't think it is controversial at all. Uh, a lot of people support me. The majority of people in Australia no support doubt. me. I have no doubt. How is it, just one other point on that, how is it in Australia that someone like you, who holds a simple opinion that biological males shouldn't play female sport, and yet, because you hold that view, you have to be followed during an election campaign by security detail. No one, Catherine, should be afraid to leave their home, surely. I agree with you. Uh, it seems that if you stand up and say something that goes against uh, the prevailing uh, dogma of the time, which might be that biological sex exists and that if we ignore it in the context of sport, it has ramifications for girls and women, it upsets people to the point that they will threaten your family. Mm, absolutely. I just should say to my viewers, how important is what this lady is saying? Let me tell you. It derives from the fact that Sports Australia, and I've had a lot to do with this, and the Australian Human Rights Commission, published guidelines two years ago that displaced the category of biological sex in favour of gender identity. Now, the AFL, rugby, swimming, athletics, netball, life-saving, basketball, soccer and cricket have adopted these policies. Now, I don't know whether they're being implemented. Are they being implemented, Catherine? Uh, yes, so these major sports are implementing them. I've had a look at their guidelines and they absolutely are prioritising gender identity over sex. It's very clear. Uh, the categories are based on what someone declares their gender identity to be. So someone born a male could play women's rugby against one of your girls? Uh, look, with rugby there are a few uh, limitations around that. Uh, but say with hockey there's no limitation. You just merely have to sign up by ticking the female box and you can play that sport. Have parents and women been consulted on any of this? It doesn't appear so. Uh, I reached out to many of these sporting bodies, to Sport Australia, to AHRC, other women have too. Uh, we didn't get a satisfactory response if we got a response at all. I mean, we're talking about the biological advantage of males. I'll come to that in a moment, but there's this other issue, is there not? That a person's trans or gender identity must remain confidential. So am I right in saying that anyone who raises a concern is the one who will be penalised? Uh, that's right. It is said that a person who declares they have a, a trans identity, uh, it is to remain confidential. Uh, so parents uh, and other female athletes aren't to be told. So doesn't the policy state that such a person is entitled then to use the toilets and the change rooms and overnight accommodation which aligns with their gender identity? So as a mother, I guess you're concerned about males entering spaces where your girls and teenagers and women may be in a state of undress. Uh, absolutely. Uh, not just mothers, fathers, grandparents, uh, husbands uh, and the women and girls themselves. They do not want to be in a space 
uh, with a male body when they are undressed, showering, or uh, otherwise uh, in a state of vulnerability. Uh, we've seen this with Leah Thomas in the United States, where girls have had to accommodate this six foot four male in their change room. See, there's a mounting, I don't want to go on this because I want to talk to you about cost of living in a moment, but there's a mounting body of evidence that males enjoy a significant biological advantage. Now, the comments of Professor Ross Tucker are valid here, a sports scientist, one of the architects of World Rugby's transgender athlete guidelines, one of the only policies in world sport that has instructed federations to ban trans women from competing at an elite level for safety reasons. Now, he condemned sports bodies which continue to embrace inclusion over science, arguing that fairness and inclusion cannot coexist in women's sport. Now, commenting on the argument that suppressing testosterone removes male advantage, Professor Tucker said, and I quote, whatever it is in our biology that gives males advantage, and it's many things, a skeleton, muscle, lungs, blood, nerves, tendons, those things don't disappear. And if you understand that, you understand you can't have fairness and inclusion. Catherine, these are encouraging observations by a scientist. Why are they ignored? Simply because of what you've articulated, Alan, they are absolutely prioritising inclusion uh, over fair competition and player safety. It's just extraordinary. I, just coming to something else, I note, I want to raise this with you, and you don't have to answer if you like, but a couple of weeks ago, people like the New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane, called for you to be disendorsed. Now, from where I sit and out there listening to us tonight, there are many diehard Liberals cheering for you and believe that Matt Keane is the person, amongst others of your critics, who should be disendorsed. How do you feel about all this? Well, look, the Liberals are a broad church, but I have the backing of Scott Morrison, Tony Abbott and John Howard. Not a bad trifecta. That's right. I have the backing of ordinary Australians everywhere who simply want to see common sense return to policy. Mm. Well, tell me about these ordinary Australians, because in Warringah there are other issues which you've been addressing, because this lady is a highly intelligent woman. She's not a one-issue candidate. Take this issue of the cost of living and the gap between inflation, which we've got at five and a bit percent, and wages at two and a bit percent. How big is that as an issue in the electorate? Look, I've been out on hustings and pre-poll every day of this, almost every day of this campaign, uh, and the issues that invariably arise are to do with cost of living. They're to do with housing affordability and scarcity, which uh, Prime Minister Morrison uh, is looking at alleviating some of the pressure there uh, with his plan for home buyers to access a deposit through their super. Uh, it's to do with health services. It's to do with the Beaches Link Tunnel. People do want to talk about the sports issue, but invariably it's those issues that are facing people in their everyday lives that they want to talk about when they talk with me. Yeah, just coming back to that important housing issue, I've been saying, uh, Catherine, for some time, when you've got a 23, 25, 26-year-old paying off a hex debt, mm -hmm. that's the first thing, then they're renting, they've left home to rent, and then they've got to try and save a deposit now, the banks will only give you 80% if you're lucky. And if you've got a, a unit for $700,000, and you know that's hard to get, come by in Sydney, mm -hmm. that's a deposit of $140,000. Uh, the notion of trying to get some money out of super certainly goes some way, does it not, towards alleviating the problem. But the problem is bigger than that, isn't it? 
Look, it is a big problem, uh, particularly in the Warringah electorate. Uh, we, we understand that the biggest barrier to home ownership and getting that money together is getting the deposit itself. It's not necessarily, necessarily servicing the loan, but anything that can assist to help people get into their own homes. And we know that that is the basis for stability, security, personal prosperity mm. in life. Uh, it's really critical that we Well, you we can't have can. a satisfactory retirement if you don't own your home, can you? I mean, paying rent and all the rest of it. Just That's on raising your three little girls and school, what kind of messages do they bring home to you? Because many people are writing to me and saying, it's not education anymore, it's indoctrination. Does that worry you? It absolutely does. It has come to my attention that my children don't even know what the First Fleet is or who Captain Cook is. Correct. Because, yeah, our history our curriculum uh, has been, you know, learning about uh, not just Indigenous history but also uh, modern Australian history uh, has been set aside. And I think that seeing that these ideologies creeping into our schools, whether it's uh, critical race theory, gender identity, uh, things of that nature. It really doesn't have any place in schools. Not at all. Listen, it's wonderful to talk to you. Um, I, think, I think you're an absolutely outstanding candidate. I want to commend you on your courage, the clarity of your thinking on several issues. And I say to our viewers out there, Catherine Deves is merely saying that male athletes, amongst other things, and she said good things there on education, did she not, and housing, but that male athletes should not compete in the female sport category. If that is controversial, we are in trouble. She's the Liberal candidate in the Warringah electorate. I think she's got a big chance on Saturday. But if you want to make the vote on Saturday a referendum on this issue, I am urging you strongly to support Catherine Deves, the Liberal candidate in Warringah. I congratulate you, Catherine. There are many people watching you tonight who have a sense of immense pride for the stand you've taken and the courage you've taken in the face of very significant criticism. So hang in there. Good to talk. Good evening, Alan. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome. There she is, Catherine Deves. Well, there are some interesting candidates in this election, but time hasn't permitted me to give them what I believe is their due. If I could make one significant criticism of the Liberal Party, their headquarters in Brisbane operate like the Kremlin. There are several candidates I wanted to speak to who deserve a profile, but head office campaign headquarters won't let them speak to anyone. How can a candidate build a profile if they're denied the opportunity that media exposure gives them? The seat of Barton, named after Sir Edmund Barton, the first Prime Minister of Australia, has always been a fairly marginal seat. It's been held by the Labor Party for most of the period after 1940, though the Liberals have won it, notably Jim Bradfield, who held it for eight years in the 70s and 80s. The most prominent member of the seat in Barton was Dr H. V. Everett, who was leader of the Labor Party between 1951 and 1960. Robert McClelland, a good man, was the member for Barton and Labor's Attorney-General in the Rudd and Gillard governments. He held the seat for 17 years. It takes in outer Sydney areas like Arncliffe, Bardwell Park, Bexley, Brighton, Sands, Clempton Park, Earlwood, Rockdale and parts of Belmore, Beverly Hills, Campsie, Canterbury, Dulwich Hill, Hurstville, Kingsgrove, Cogram, Marrickville and Penshurst. It's now held by Linda Burney. However, why am I telling you this? A young 21-year-old has stuck his hand up for the Liberal Party, John Goody. His first job was working as a warehouse assistant, then at his local supermarket and then in an employment relations business. Now, he'll obviously struggle to win, but is this what we need? A 21-year-old having a go for the Liberal Party. John Goody. Good luck to him on Saturday in the seat of Barton. Now, as I've said many times, 
This election should be very much a Senate election. The Senate's meant to be the House of Review. You need to put people in the Senate should a Labor Greens government pass legislation that will need serious review. The bloke to watch in a Labor government is this fellow Dreyfus. He'll be the Attorney General. He is full of himself, self-important, and if he gets up his Integrity Commission, he could well give it a retrospective power and who knows who might be in his sights. The Senate is important. One Nation in Victoria are looking to win the sixth seat by a man called Warren Pickering. Now, these are the sorts of people I think we need in the Parliament. Warren Pickering has worked in the construction industry. In his late 20s, he wanted to contribute to his country. He joined the Australian Army as a combat engineer. Seven years of full-time service, multiple foreign operations and engagements, domestic deployments as a trainer instructor of foreign security forces. He then transferred to the Army Reserves, worked in the coal industry in central Queensland. But he vocalised his discontent with the COVID vaccination mandate implemented by the company which employed him, and he was stood down. But he said, I've always felt an inherent sense of moral obligation as both a parent and citizen of our country to stand in the face of injustice and mismanagement of our children's future. Well, this bloke Warren Pickering is an outstanding Senate candidate on Saturday in Victoria. He said he intends to represent working class Australians who've been too busy working hard to engage in political dialogue. He joins me. Warren, thank you for your time. Congratulations, you're a great candidate. You say Australians find themselves drastically underrepresented in all areas of government. What do you mean by that? Yeah, fair. thank you for the opportunity, Alan. Uh, I, I absolutely believe that. We're currently under the representation of career politicians whom, whom claim to have the working class or the regular working Australians' best interest at heart. Whereas I think the last couple of years, it's become abundantly clear that that's just not the case. You're absolutely right about that. Too many people in suits and too many lawyers. You said you joined One Nation because, quote, it's always been the flag bearer for the Australian working class. Amplify that point, Warren. So I'll amplify that by specifically uh, referring to Senator Hanson herself and her views. I feel like she's always had a finger on the collective pulse of working class Australia. So she's able to, anytime a new topic comes up in the news, rather than like the majors, sit on the fence or dilly-dally and wait to see which way public opinion falls before uh, making a statement or choosing a side, so to speak, uh, Senator Hanson knows she's got a finger on the pulse of working class Australia. So she's able to express her own opinions vocally straight away uh, with a, a fairly reasonable understanding that most Australians will get behind her and her opinion. Good on you. Absolutely right. Look, I was interested to note your point about fuel security. Do we have fuel security? We're meant to have a minimum 90 days. I don't believe we do, no. Uh, I'm of a, a generation, so I was born in 82, so I'm coming up to 40 years now. Some people might consider that a bit young. However, I think it's, it's to our testament. Uh, I believe in the 80s when we used to see a lot of refining still occurring in and around Melbourne, as I was a kid driving over the Westgate Bridge and things like that, uh, we need to go back to that. I believe that's the only way to realistically have that fuel security. Absolutely. And from a uh, strategic standpoint and security standpoint, uh, with my defence background, it's absolutely paramount. And also to risk mitigate against the situation we've just faced. And also on that situation we've just faced, and, and that highlights just how out of touch the, the majors are. It took Senator Hanson to 
raise the prospect of, you know, a potential 50% fuel excise cut to alleviate the problem in the short term before the government decided to adopt that. Now, to anyone that's capable of critical thought, that was the obvious short-term solution. Why Why did it need to be suggested to them to do such a thing? If I can interrupt, this is extraordinary. <laughs> this bloke has never been in politics. He's an absolutely embryonic politician. And here he is making more sense than all the other people put together. I just wanted to ask you, you're 100% right on fuel security. You had something to say about yeah. the education system. Uh, you've got children, I know, and you're a single parent. What do you see as the problems there? So I think there's a combination of problems there and they've, they've been extensive and I think they've sort of it's polarised over the last few years. Uh, I definitely think we need to get away from... Uh, sorry, I think we should get back to criti teaching critical thinking in, thinking in schools. Uh, for a $20 billion a year economy, we tip into our education and we're ranked in the middle of middle to high income countries for basic numeracy and literacy. That's disgusting. Uh, and just other topics. So my daughter's just turned 18. She's just finished year 12. And she said to me, Dad, I don't know what the Senate is. And I'll, I'll accept that. That's a failure on my part, as well as the education system. As a parent, we need to realise that schools don't teach them everything. However, how hard would it have been in year 10 or 11 or 12 to, to do, you know, one portion of the semester, two or three weeks to teach kids about the governance of the country that they're about to enter oh, in the workforce? Good on you. I, just... Hey, tell yeah. you what, listen, we've run out of time, but Warren Pickering, we need more of you in the Parliament and all you Victorians down there, you've got a chance on Saturday. This bloke's after a Senate seat. We want these sorts of people. This is a bloke who worked in the coal industry in Queensland. He's tremendously broad-brushed in terms of his interests and, of course, articulate and has a view and it's an independent view. Warren, good to talk to you. We need more of you in the Parliament. I really wish you well on Saturday. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate your time and uh, I agree entirely. We need a few of me. Good on you. <laughs> there he is, Warren Pick Pickering. He is a Senate candidate in Victoria for One Nation on Saturday. Give him your vote. Well, look, before we go, those in the Liberal Party should not be shocked about what is coming their way. The disillusionment with the party has been going on for years. In September 2013, voters overwhelmingly elected Tony Abbott and his team to mop up Labor's mess after six dysfunctional years. When the coalition were brought into power, there was a collective sigh of relief. For once, the spendthrifts were sent home packing. No more policy stuff-ups like the NBN rollout, pink bats, cash for clunkers, eye-watering sums of money for school halls, and the so-called education revolution, not to mention Labor's debt and deficit. Who could forget the then-Treasurer Wayne Swan saying, the four years of surpluses I announced tonight unquote. Never eventuated. The Rudd and Gillard governments were comedy hour. Australians wanted Tony Abbott and his team to end the nightmare and correct the course. But what of nine years of Liberals in power given Australia? Firstly, they dumped the man who won them the election, won 25 seats from Labor. Malcolm Turnbull and a handful of sycophants plotted for months, meeting secretly. In the last instance, Abbott was in South Australia making an announcement while Turnbull's stooges were about to strike in Queanbeyan. Then to rub salt in the wound, Turnbull never appointed Abbott as a minister in his government. A reminder that he had no plans to unite the team after unleashing division. And this was a running theme for Turnbull, treating Conservatives as the enemy, despite leading a Conservative political party. 
Then we had all these promises from Turnbull that he would reform the tax system and gift Australians his amazing economic knowledge. Nothing of the kind eventuated. In the case of the GST, it all got too hard, so he vacated the field. Then in the 2016 federal election, where he wouldn't leave his house, remember, too humiliated that Bill Shorten came within a whisker of taking government from him. When it came to the drought in 2018, the Turnbull government could offer only a piddling $190 million for farmers on their knees who'd lost everything. The assistance was half of what the New South Wales government had offered. But in the same week, he gave the farming community $190 million. He gave the Great Barrier Reef Foundation a charity, $444 million. They never asked for a cent. And at the same time, kept fighting, Turnbull did, for a $17 billion corporate tax cut. Finally, it was the National Energy Guarantee which woke up his colleagues. After killing Labor's carbon tax, Turnbull, a renewable energy junkie, wanted to fight an election on energy and climate policy with his Labor-lite NEG. The party room turfed him out. Then we have Scott Morrison, whose political convictions we're still yet to see. The economic recklessness continues. The silencing of dissenting viewpoints continues. So we're now left with an ideologically lost Liberal Party, not knowing which way to turn. And on Saturday, Australians will have their say. Tragically, I don't believe it'll be good news. Scott Morrison can't win 76 seats needed to form government. Labor currently have 68. I don't see any instance where the Coalition can win a single seat from Labor. Can Labor win eight seats to get to 76? My reckoning is they can, but the voters will decide that. That's it from me for this week. I'll see you next Monday, which will be an interesting Monday indeed. 8pm on ADH.TV. Thank you for your company. Good night.